I'm in a wonderful position having God's help. Uh, and uh, God, of course, in the case of a documentary filmmaker, is reality. That was the voice of Albert Maisel, is the seminal cinema verite pioneer, a great documentary filmmaker who passed away this week. Uh, for many years, Albert worked with his brother David on some of the most amazing and uh, memorable documentaries of all time, including Great Gardens and Gimme Shelter and Salesman, and he even had a new movie uh, that he recently completed that's playing at the Tribeca Film Festival just next month. So in this week's podcast, which is dedicated to his memory, Ann and I talk about why Albert Maisels and his brother mattered as filmmakers and also how their legacy continues to have reverberations for the way that people talk and think and look at movies today and the way that they're made, of course. In addition to that, we also discuss Lena Dunham, who's branching out in all kinds of interesting ways, and the question of diversity in TV and film and how they differ, as well as some of the new releases. Remember, of course, that you can subscribe to us on iTunes to get weekly updates there we encourage you to review the show. You can also reach out to us on Twitter with questions that we may incorporate into upcoming episodes. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at A.K. Stanwick. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic and deputy editor, joined as always by Ann Thompson, who's uh, just coming back from a little break. How are you feeling, Ann? I relaxed, and uh, as soon as I started to relax, I uh, I had to start over again. <laughs> I'm fine. It was lovely. That's good to know. I mean, it's uh, we've been through a lot the last couple of months, and uh, it's probably the right time to uh, take a breather. Uh, as we're shifting into a lot of different stuff throughout the rest of the year, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of look at the calendar and get a sense for, you know, all the different things that are coming up. And this week, uh, we got the lineup for the Tribeca Film Festival. And uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because this morning we got the unfortunate news that Albert Maisel has uh, passed away. Now, yesterday, we got the news that there was an Albert Maisel's film in the Tribeca Film Festival. And uh, that may be, in fact, his final work. But what's interesting about that to me is that, uh, you know, a lot of these filmmakers who are just so prolific, you know, you sort of take for granted after a while that they just continue to produce work indefinitely, almost like they're immortal because of the way that they work. You know, somebody like Sidney Lumet, I remember when he passed away, I was sort of like, well, that, that couldn't happen, right? I mean, Sidney Lumet's just going to keep movies, making movies indefinitely, you know? And I know, Albert, there's something Albert about Mills. hitting the 80s that, uh, you know, especially... You know what? They did a study once. I, I, I just I don't know why this hit, entered my brain. They did a study once that of all the jobs you can have on a movie, being a director uh, leads to the shortest life. I hate to say it, but it's a stressful thing, you know, to be a director. Um, it's a lot of it's a lot of stress and strain on any on any mortal soul. No, I mean, and, and frankly, what, what's interesting about it with respect to Albert Maisel's, who produced these great documentaries over the decades with his brother David, uh, including Gimme Shelter and Salesman, is is the way in which. You know, the, there's something deceptively simple in some ways about cinema verite when you go back and look at it. 
you know, but but then you think about sort of the the practical element of, of bringing these movies to fruition and the way in which, you know, they were able to kind of construct stories that almost seemed like uh, you just happen to be in the room with people is incredibly sophisticated, not only from, you know, sort of the, the standpoint of, you know, how do you get permission to film these people in very intimate kind of fragile ways, but also, you know, how do you turn it into art? You know, I mean, I remember with Salesman, it was what was so remarkable to me was that it almost felt like, a, you know, a scripted narrative in parts. And yet at the same time, it was you felt too close to these people, like like somehow you'd invaded their lives. You know? Well, they, the great example of that, of course, is is Grey Gardens, the 1976 classic, which has been restored by Criterion. They took the the original 16 millimeter um, uh, AB reels and did two 2K scans on them with laser graphics scanner, and became. Uh, it's going to be showing. In fact, today it start, it opens at the Film Forum, and That's right. and uh, it's a great opportunity to celebrate. Uh, the Maisel's brothers. Uh, David died back in 1987, and so uh, Albert was the the survivor, um, and you know, really celebrated for his amazing cinematography. I think Jean Luc Godard said that he was the best shooter ever. And it's hard to you know when we take for granted how that kind of verite filmmaking has become so prevalent that they really pioneered it and they pioneered the idea of separating the sound from the image which was you know it seems very you know to use anagra and and then take long takes that could go on forever and ever uh that was a big deal that was something they did first right well and, and also just the very notion of handheld camera work uh, being a way to inject realism into a, into a situation that I think you know almost almost felt wrong. You know, it's it's like people were so used to their moving images being more polished versions of reality, and what this direct cinema technique did was it broke down that barrier. And in that sense, I think it also anticipated our current media climate where everything's being filmed. You know, Correct. where you know to some degree the kind of world that you know, the average media consumer is used to in which you just sort of look at, you know, all kinds of random amateur video content throughout the day in the same way that you would watch, you know, the news or something like that owes much to how direct cinema, I think, allowed people to understand how stories can be understood. You know, nonfiction stories can be understood in that in that way. And also, you know, it's interesting. So Albert Mezos has another movie that hasn't come out yet, but was uh, on the festival circuit last fall called Iris, uh, which is a portrait of the, this, uh, this fashion maven. Um, and, uh, and what I think is interesting about that is that, you know, if you look at the topics that the Maisel's brothers tackled over the years and then later just out on his own, they don't settle into any particular beat, you know? That no, they is, keep trying new things. Right. It was, it Although was, there was a, a love of, of music, I would suggest to you, from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones. Sure, and he um, did something with uh, with Paul McCartney just a couple years ago, so that, w- that was consistent. But, you know, and then he did something on The Gates just a couple of years ago, and, um, you know, look at Salesman, uh, again, I, I find that to be such an incredible look at sort of the, the disillusions, the, the kind of, you know, illusions associated with the American dream and things of that nature. But then Grey Gardens is much more intimate and about, you know, aging and so forth. And so this is an incredibly sophisticated legacy that I think will continue to reveal itself through time. Agreed. 
Agreed. Um, you know, one one person who's who's branching out into into documentary, although I highly doubt that she'll be in the same league as the, as the Maisel, uh, I'm making a, a, a segue here, is uh, Lena Dunham, who is uh, producing uh, a documentary um, uh, and doing other things besides girls, which which is in its fourth season, heading into its fifth. Um, she she wrote not that kind of girl, which was number two on the bestseller list when it debuted. But the doc she's doing uh, is about the author of the Eloise books, Hillary Knight, and uh, she's producing it, executive producing it with her with her producer uh, uh, J- Jody Coner. So so it's 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 is it Jenny Coner? Yeah, and and. She She's coming up with that uh, on HBO, her friend. It's also, uh, it's directed by Matt Wolf, I believe. Correct. Who who made this movie Teenage a few years ago. Um, Really talented guy. So it's uh, and and she's also attached to uh, HBO Sports Seven Days in Hell, a, a mockumentary about the epic tennis match between John Isner and Nicholas Mahut at uh, Wimbledon in two thousand and four. And of course, what everybody's reading today is her guest appearance on Shonda Rhimes' Scandal in in a long wig. So uh, <laughs> so March twenty third is the debut of It's Me, Hillary, the man who drew Eloise. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I remember when I saw Lena. Dunham's first movie at South by Southwest, which is just right around the corner. So it was probably about almost exactly I think six years ago. It was not Tiny Furniture. It was creative nonfiction, which is in the still existing um, visions section of the festival. And it was like an hour long, really cool kind of intimate tale of, of this girl in her dorm room who takes a creative nonfiction writing class and that sort of influences the way that she sees her world and interacts with people and just you know my feeling about that at the time was this isn't quite a finished movie it's certainly not a polished movie but there's something there in the way in which it plays between truth and and fiction not only in the plot itself like you would see her kind of reenacting these fantasies from her creative writing and stuff like that. But also there was a real sense of the voice of this person is has got to be coming from a real place, you know, like it's something genuine. And Tiny Furniture confirmed that, with, you know, that even though this wasn't exactly her life or herself that she was playing, there was something autobiographical in, in the sensibilities and, and the way in which she would write dialogue. And I think that's been consistent up until absolutely. Point. So when and you say branching we out, we could even argue there's a connection with the Maisels in the sense that there's a, a verite to to what Dunham does. Always exactly. has been. Yeah, that's what I think is really interesting. It's not documentary filmmaking per se, but there's something Hybrid. documentary-like about it. Now, in in terms of branching out, I think that's how the, the narrative continues. In some ways, it's like the, Lena Dunham's sensibilities. Are, are something that a lot of people clearly relate to, and that has been key to sort of the cultural phenomenon surrounding her career. These or last they few react years. against her. Right, I mean, there's exactly. an enormous body of, I would suggest to you, male <laughs> reaction against well, her. Well, and, and all of that stuff is a microcosm of, of larger issues in our, in our relatively conservative society. And, uh, you know, I think she's challenging that kind of stuff. And I would say the branching out stuff, you know, I don't watch a ton of Scandal. My girlfriend's obsessed, so I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with things like that. I've just seen like a that. couple of episodes. But My I daughter say, loves it. Yeah. What, what's great about Scandal is, is the extent to which it, it has this empowered female character who is always sort of at the center of the action. And in some ways, 
while, while not infallible, it's impossible not to root for her no matter what she's doing. I mean, no, she I can agree. face I agree. down and the, it, it, you know, the but president. But Shonda Rhimes and, and, uh, the, and Scandal um, and Lena Dunham are all about how fun it is to watch smart, complicated often messed up women. It, it, it applies also uh, to How to Get Away with Murder with the great uh, Viola Davis, another rhymes show. It applies to House of Cards. I went on vacation, as you, sa- as you said, and I binged. I saw all of House of Cards. Netflix makes it so easy. You just go right to the next one, right to the next one. And I was like this the, the last time, too. I love this show. And the, the, this, this season it gets into the um, Kevin Spacey character, Frank Underwood and his wife, Claire, played by, of course, uh, the great Robin Wright. And it's all about her trying to get a piece of the action. It's as if it were Bill and Hillary in a way. Um, and, and there's a great character uh, basically uh, based on uh, Vladimir Putin, whose name is Petrov, um, which always makes me think of a Fred Astaire movie where he plays a dancer called Petra. Um, but in, in any case, uh, it's played by uh, Mads Mikkelsen's brother, Lars, who's fabulous. He's like mm. better than Putin. And, and I love this, this show, but it, the point is the women are as interesting. There's a woman who's, there are two women who are like the, the powerful um, people in, in the, in the in, one is a, a senator um, and, and one is, uh, you know, challenging, um, one is a legal, per, you know, an, an incredible lawyer who's challenging uh, Frank Underwood. And, and, and the point is, you know, we can see so many different characters of so many, and something like Empire that is doing really well on television. And if, if the ratings are through the roof. That's Lee Daniels' series about um, a King Lear uh, uh, family situation in hip hop, led by Terrence Howard and the great uh, Taraji P Henson, and and you you just you're just it's so much fun to watch, and and more interesting than the same old same old kinds of retreads that we're getting uh, at the movies, basically where they it's a white you see so many posters now of these movies aimed at um, overseas audiences mainly, with one man after another up there and no women at all. And, you know, why would I go see those films? Well, I mean, I think there's something to be said for the, the, one of the central flaws of, 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 the, of what mainstream filmmaking is today is that it, they're, they're so risk-averse in so many cases because they're catering to the lowest common denominator and they're looking at these basic demographics and making broad assumptions about who goes to the movies or who's most likely to go to the movies. Outdated. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. But the other but thing is... But they don't is, even... They're not even supplied... They're not but, even supported by the numbers. That, but it's that's not the point, though. The point is that, that you can spin those numbers any way you want to, and I think it's much easier to spin them in a better, more progressive way for TV because it's easier to say, well, everybody's at home watching TV, but we're going to say a smaller crowd of people go out to watch movies. What is that smaller crowd? Let's come up with some thesis about what that smaller crowd is. Well, it's probably young guys, so let's, like, make some crappy action movies, you know? Like, whereas with TV, I think there's just a bigger opportunity to cast a wider net because it's easier to make the case to some person who has the power to greenlight this or that or the other thing that... Well, you know, families and couples and whatever happen to be 
on their couches. You know, what was interesting to me was I visited the set for Mozart in the Jungle, the Amazon show, which is actually kind of uh, underappreciated right now, but it's getting another season, so I think people should try to check it out. Lola Kirk, who's in the new uh, Noah Baumbach movie, is, is, uh, is a star Mistress of that America. show. America. Yeah, yeah. J- Jason Schwartzman is a co-writer on that show, and he was telling me how one of the things that he realized about binge viewing is that it's, it's, a, it's a group experience which is not necessarily something that people have talked about with respect to TV for a long time, even though, you know, pe- you know, families do watch, you know, shows. You know, there's something about the TV in the American household that's been part of our culture for a really long period of time. The very process of binge viewing is more of this, like, specific, like, project which changes the way we have a relationship to TV, and so it also changes the way in which stories can be told and the kinds of stories that can be told because people want to watch all kinds of different stories in this very, uh, you know, specific kind of environment. So Yeah, Orange is the New Black is yet another example, or the trans drama, um, uh, transparent. Um, you know, there's, they're showing us people that they never show us in movies, you know? And by the way, Fifty Shades of Grey heading, I think it hit the $500 million mark worldwide. $500 million. Yeah. Aimed strictly at women. I, I mean, honestly, you know, I wish there was a better excuse to uh, to celebrate a, a movie aimed at women that was making a lot of money. But You uh, know what? I argue in favor of Fifty Shades of Grey in the following way. It was written, the book was written by a woman, uh, a woman studio chief, you know, you know commandeered the, the production. Uh, they did bring in two guys to be producers who basically fell away over the course of the production. And uh, the, Donna Langley at Universal was running the show. And uh, there was a woman director, a woman screenwriter. Um, it was real. Who, and the director was I, fighting. I'm not going to argue novel. with any So of it was sex from a woman's point yeah, of view, which it, is rare. But also just not a very good movie. That's I mean, okay. <laughs> you know, how many mad movies are made by men and about men with men? Okay, I mean, if, but there's that two do just as much business. We have. There, there's the ideological or, 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 or moral value of a project like this. And then there's sort of the, you know, are you, are you giving it an easier pass because of its content? Whereas, you know, could we do better by kind of putting pressure Absolutely. on people to make better movies that, that actually involve, you know, women and, and, you know, minorities and, so forth. I mean, it's it's not enough just to say, oh, this movie is successful. And we need good numbers. Different. We need good numbers to support the the the, the increase in, in the numbers of films like the ones you describe, honestly. But you're you're more interested in in believe. I mean, don't get mad at me, but but your 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 standards are are high art. You know. Yeah. This Why is, would I get mad is, about that? I'm proud of I that. I would not. I would not <laughs> suggest anything else. But the, the, you know, this is a mainstream entertainment. This isn't your cup of tea, and it's not no. aimed at you. Uh, I mean, it's uh, you know, I like. I I like some things that are made on bigger scales, but you're right. Maybe it's not intended for me. On on the other hand, I mean, again, when we spoke about uh, this movie last time, I I singled out uh, the movie Duke of Burgundy, which is another movie involving S&M and and exclusively surrounds the relationship between two women uh, in a kind of quasi-Victorian setting, which is part of their like role-playing thing, uh, there are no men whatsoever in that in that movie. And, and made by I mean, a man, though. It right? is made by a man. Um, I wouldn't necessarily hold him accountable for that. 
but <laughs> no, let's uh, all right. Moving on, moving on. Did you? So neither of us. Speaking of of movies that that are mainstream, neither of us apparently went to see uh, Chappie this you know, weekend, which is the latest movie by Neil Blomkamp. And um, it's just gotten, it's like a 30% on yeah. Rotten Tomatoes. It's but just gotten killed. I, I mean, I was kind of curious because he's a talented guy. Clearly, District 9 was, was remarkable. I love District but, 9. I mean, I, I went to see, I don't usually, like I've said before, watch trailers, and they can be very misleading, but I happened to see one for this a few months out when I was just at, at the theater, and it was very clearly a half-baked concept i mean come on short circuit you know we've seen that story before i know the young brilliant scientist and the robot with the heart of gold because he learns how to think and feel and saves everybody or whatever i don't know and plus you know it's it's another near future kind of dystopian Dystopian. south africa but hey you know i mean you guys on on thompson and hollywood ran an interesting piece about you know is this gonna put a damper on his his next project which is an alien sequel if anything i think it's probably a good thing for this guy to find an excuse to work in diff- with different material because he was, it seemed like he was sort of trapped by in i agree form, you and, know, and another, uh, so. what it makes it the, what it begs the question is is you know how much because i remember the first i think i was at cinema con at the first press conference when they first introduced footage from from District Nine, and I remember the presence of Peter Jackson. At the, you know, he was the mentor. He was the one who made that movie possible and helped shepherd it through the system. And right. I can't help but think that he must have had a very positive influence. And I think what happens a lot. When you look at filmmakers, you know, from when they first break out until they have a real career and until they um, end up, uh, you know, we, we're going to move on to talk about Abel Ferrara, who you wrote about memorably uh, this week. But the idea is that I often feel that, to, that Hollywood leads some filmmakers to feel very strongly about protecting their material and, you know, to fight for their vision. And, of course, to a degree, that's an important thing thing but some people need collaborators and producers and smart people working with them to prevent them from doing the wrong thing and sometimes this independent universe where you raise movies over you know money overseas and create these sort of star auteurs you know it doesn't help out help them in the end well also um, success can be very misleading you know and i think with with somebody like Blomkamp who made so so clearly a movie that you know, works on a broad scale with his first feature. Uh, the reverberations of that were so great that he was able to make not one but two large-scale blockbusters. With, he was even Oscar-nominated, yeah, you know? Yeah, on the first film. So, yeah. you know, that that seems like sort of a dangerous thing, and, and especially to me, what, I, what seems more reasonable to me is somebody who has uh, a certain kind of vision and talent and, and works in a very particular way you know, may want to take a step back and say, well, what are my priorities here? Because if your priorities are just to kind of continue to tinker around and make things on your own terms, you probably shouldn't get deeper and deeper into the Hollywood equation. You know, like Richard Linklater goes and sets up shop in Austin, even when he does make studio movies, and that's worked out quite well. Whereas, you know, a lot of newcomers seem to get sucked up by the sort of excitement of their success. I mean, look at what happened to the guy who made 500 Days of Summer, 
who then made two Spider-Man movies that nobody And God knows where his soul is right now. Yeah. I mean, he's going to have to come back from that. There's the, the, the tales of people who tried to make it in Hollywood after they broke out or legendary. Yeah. Someone like Stephen Frears had to go back to England. Right. He was so demoralized. Well, Neil Jordan had to go back Abel uh, to the UK. Abel and talk and about Abel Ferrara. Uh, I remember him when he, you know, Kings of New York, and he was just a you know, bad lieutenant. He was just God's gift. He was right. fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, and well, here's the thing, and the, and the, the irony of all this. Uh, I mean, so the story that that I wrote about this week was one that um, kind of cropped up last fall on the festival circuit, and then came back exclusively because Abel knows how to get in touch with journalists and, and, and reached out. But basically, his his Dominique Strauss comedy with Gerard Depardieu, Welcome to New York, is, is opening in the U.S. later this week. It's an R-rated cut that uh, was delivered to IFC by Wild Munch. Abel Farrar says it's not his cut, and he protests it, said a lot of really extreme stuff about freedom of speech and all that. Um, he is still making really interesting, compelling movies. He, he didn't stop. It's more that I think he was... On the, he he did screw up a lot in terms of drug addiction and all these other kinds of things, but also he's I think... He's straight now, right? He, he, he's been supposedly sober for, I, I think... Uh, five six years if not more um but, but his uh, but his behavior he always seems to get in trouble with you know d- did he have final cut did right. did did the distributor screw up the movie this has happened several times but, did he get what, financing what I would pulled say, out what i would say is this is somebody who you know showed a certain kind of edgy sensibility from the get-go with driller killer in 1979 continued to develop it through the 80s, came up with this great crop of New York filmmakers, you know, Scorsese and the like, right? I mean, he's on that level, and Bad Lieutenant was 92. That was a terrific accomplishment, and around that time, he started to do some studio stuff. He did Body Snatchers for Warner Brothers and Dangerous Game with uh, Madonna, uh, both in the neither of them memorable. No, well, I think Body Snatchers is an interesting movie, actually, but... uh, I think he was the the attitude and energy he had at that point was then further radicalized by experiences in the system around the same time where your buddy Spike Lee was going through certain things with Malcolm X. You know, it was a it was just a certain time when some of these younger filmmakers were going through the system and realizing they could only do certain things in a limited way, um, and since then. He's been so distrustful of authority that anything can set him off. So the very idea that a few minutes of the kind of ridiculous orgy at the top of Welcome to New York that's supposed to show this hedonistic lifestyle that DSK leads could be cut down so that the movie has an R rating instead of being unrated. Uh, which was so that IFC would spend more money on it. And had to do with the Showtime deal. These things um, are contractual. Yeah, they're contractual. supposed to do. It. I think plans, it's impressive yeah. that you managed to get Vincent Mar- Maraval to actually talk to you. You know, yeah. he doesn't talk to the press. Yeah. Vincent from uh, Wild Bunch doesn't like to talk to us, but uh, I think in this case, you know, to some degree, he needed to because what happened was IFC had nothing to do with this. IFC just bought the movie from Wild Bunch, right? So when Abel first spoke out against IFC and Wild Bunch, his aim was a little bit off. His beef is with Wild Bunch. And the question is, did Wild Bunch somehow trick Abel or give him the wrong amount of information about to what extent this was his final cut? Because in the deal between Wild Bunch and IFC, Wild Bunch 
basically said, we will sell you an R-rated movie. IFC will spend more on an R-rated movie because of the syndication that they can get out of it. I so, beg to suggest to you that Ferrara is sophisticated enough to know that he's supposed to deliver an R-rating. I think so, too. I think that what happened there was there was some either miscommunication or something else set him off that he's not letting on. In any case, you know... He's talking about censorship. That's yeah. bullshit to me. But I, I mean, I experienced uh, something else with this guy at one point in a film festival uh, where I did an interview with him, and then he had some regrets about the interview, and then there was another time where he wanted to have, like, kind of host a secret screening of his movie at a film festival, and the festival refused because they didn't want to sour their relationship with the sales company, and he flipped out and said they were sort of selling out to the man or whatever. And, and here's the thing. This like, is what he's like. This is at it. This is the way he is. But he's the a little bit are, like Orson Welles or yeah. somebody like that. Well, he I just, mean, he who, is his Who was gifted and a genius and yeah. so forth, but just couldn't work well with others. No, but he like. is his movies, and he's exactly the kind of filmmaker whose, whose work, I think, excites me sometimes because of that. I mean, it's just it's liberating to see the way that the movies and the personality are all kind of part of the same That's thing. True. And he's in a really interesting stage right now. I mean, he's just been making really interesting movies lately. 444, Last Day on Earth with um, with Willem Dafoe was a really interesting kind of intimate None story. None of them have broken out, but, though. Well, here's the thing. So, Has he been getting good reviews? Yeah. Going back to Cannes Competition, the film was Go-Go Tales with Willem Dafoe. It was like this story where Willem Dafoe is this guy who runs a Chelsea strip club and it's all, all in the course of one night. He needs to get enough money to save the strip club by morning and, and has all these wacky encounters. But the, the basic, like, bare-bones plot could have been in a Frank Capra movie. It just happens to be in a strip club with a bunch of vulgar characters. And there was something about the way in which he played with these, these classical film traditions in his his universe of this grimy New York setting that felt really exciting. Uh, that movie was going to be released by IFC. I think there were some rights issues involving some of the music or something to that effect, and eventually they couldn't put it out, and it sort of surfaced a few years later in very limited release at Anthology Film Archives. He did a documentary about the Chelsea Hotel called Chelsea on the Rocks, which I don't think ever got any kind of theatrical release. And then 444. He got into trouble with some dry cleaning company, you know, financier. I remember yeah, reporting yeah. that at, at some point on one of his movies. But moving on, I mean, the thing the thing that's interesting is is that these issues you know, exist all the time. I mean, we have two brand new emerging auteurs, if you like, uh, filmmakers with a voice, filmmakers who are exciting. Um, one of them is a writer, and that's Damien Sifron, mm-hmm. who, uh, who of course, is, is the director from Argentina of, of Wild Tales. And then the, uh, the other is Jan Demange, uh, the director of uh, the, uh, the, the really exciting 71. Um, and, you know, what, on the one hand, you have someone who, with Wild Tales who can handle comedy, who can handle just very deftly, you know, getting great performances out of actors. And, and so what happens, and, and in the case of Jan Demange, you have someone who can handle action and also get great performances mm-hmm. out of actors. These are yeah. both very rare and valuable, precious 
skills that yeah. the Hollywood community. So what happens every single time they get they go on the fest circuit, they get wined and dined, they go uh, in, they come to Hollywood, they hang out here for a while. You know, the last person who went through this was someone like, you know, many people go through this. But another example would be someone like David Michaud, you know, and and basically you you, you meet everybody, you you go on meeting after meeting after meeting. The, the people throw all this stuff at you. And finally, and what's interesting in this case is that both Jan de Mange and Damien Sifron assured me that they were going to go back, write their own stuff. <laughs> you know? I mean, do develop their own stuff. Um, uh, uh, Jan is not a, a writer, um, and, and go home and, and, and do something. And but it's that's hard. So it's much easier to let the Hollywood people throw stuff at you. So well, Sifron's because, doing TriStar. He's doing yeah. a movie for Tom Tom, Tom Rothman. Of um, course, because the, you know. It, it, also, what happens is that these things come together very quickly in the wake of success, and and filmmakers are thrust into a series of, of meetings around town with maybe even new representation and everybody's looking at these movies that are being widely acclaimed like uh you know wild tales being oscar nominated being can competition 71 you know also having jack o'connell being a star being this big war movie you know, has been getting acclaim on film festival circuits for many months. I mean, so they waited to open it. Roadside waited to open it until after Unbroken had right. had made some some money and upped upped his his profile. But I mean, now, it just I think it creates this perception that if you don't jump on these opportunities to do these big movies, you know, like for example, with the TriStar thing, now it's like, well, in a year, if you if he goes back and it makes a movie in Argentina. You know, is he going to be able to come back and, and still get Tom Rothman to greenlight something? I mean, it, there's this sense, I think, of you have to jump on these deals now that, that creates this this The smart uh, thing, of course, is to have multiple things going on. And if he's really, if he's really, sure, Linklater, you know, has has several different things. You know, he's, he is taking taking advantage um, of of the moment. But um, I I would suggest that there are are, are several different things, uh, you know, in the hopper for for all of these guys. I mean, Jan Demange, by the way, has done very well too. He's he's got um, a project with John Lesher, who's the producer of, of Birdman, mm-hmm. and with Plan B, who did Twelve Years a Slave, and and Selma, and it's an homage uh, to uh, Scorsese, you know, set in the 80s in the corrupt cop universe. There's, I might be getting two different projects mixed up. I better, I better check it because he is, um, he's got one project that he's doing on his own. And then there's another one that he's doing with, with, uh, with TriStar. Uh, I mean, with, um, with these, uh, with the people at, uh, at Plan B. And, uh, let me just get this, let me get this right. Cause I don't want to misinform anybody. Um, the, uh, the Sony one is called the seven five and that's the, that's the Lesher and Annapurna project that's megan ellison and then the other one he's he's getting together with the people that he worked with on 71 the same writer and producers and that's for brad pitt's plan p and new regency so those are two different two different things that's pretty good he's like hooking up with the smart folks right well it it makes sense if you look at i think in a lot of cases if you look at the movies themselves or the filmmakers you can get a sense for whether or not they're going to make the right kind of decisions here. I mean, it really, it, it's, 
71 is an r- incredibly well-made war drama, but it's incredibly immersive it's from the point of view right. of the soldier. It's 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 something that that just it, it's not it's not just that it's not easy to make a movie like that. I mean, it requires a certain kind of commitment and and almost like a, a a personality to to put together a movie like that that's just such an intense kind of experience but also just very accomplished on a technical level and so i would assume somebody like that would know you know why this script isn't right for him why these people aren't necessarily the best collaborators i mean no he says that it was all very noisy and and very um confusing for a long time and then uh they showed 71 at um sundance and that and now they're opening it so that's sort of came to the end of its road and and he, he you know over the holidays and d- during the last you know it's, things sort of quieted down and he he could hear himself and he could sort of remember and and, and realize which were the projects and the people he would actually want to work with and i think he i think he chose he chose well uh, we'll see how they how they progress and what ends up happening to them i'll never forget the case of this guy florian henkel von donnersmark <laughs> <laughs> who did the lives of others really tall smart right. really sharp german filmmaker who ended up directing the tourist with yeah. uh angelina Jolie and johnny depp you know what years. happened to him <laughs> yeah no exactly so you know in some cases maybe these people should just uh you know relax and, and do their own thing but uh maybe that should uh should be our segue into the movies that are opening yes. this week because so you want to you want to promote uh buzzard i would say buzzard is a good one to promote in that respect uh, joel petrykis being a filmmaker from uh, uh michigan who is probably never going to work with anybody he doesn't trust i don't think he has any interest in signing any big deals or or uh taking on franchises or, or working with somebody else's material it's a really interesting kind of punk rock sensibility to this guy's movies He's made two features now and, and one sh- uh, a short film that sort of plays off them because they're all named after animals. There was a short film called Coyote, which was uh, it starred this actor, Joshua Burge, who's a friend of his. It's this uh, uh, heroin-addicted werewolf, very kind of surreal premise. And then the, the next one was called, uh, it was a, a fairly short feature called Ape, um, which also starred the same actor as this kind of maniacal pyromaniac slash terrible stand-up comedian and just draws you into this this narcissistic world that he lives in where he's constantly kind of searching for validation but also might be completely insane now it's it was an interesting movie kind of scrappy it didn't totally work i thought but in a lot of ways, Buzzard crystallizes the, the potential that was there. And Buzzard uh, also stars Joshua Burge uh, as this, this guy who, uh, rather than kind of trying to find get-rich-quick schemes, he's just trying to steal, like, teeny bits of money wherever he can. He has a temp job at a bank, and uh, he, he basically steals, like, a couple hundred bucks here and there from the bank. He starts taking clients' checks and signing them over to himself. And he doesn't care. He spends most of his off hours hanging out with a friend in his basement playing video games. At one point, he, he, he turns a, a Nintendo glove into a Freddy Krueger uh, toy with like actual knives <laughs> attached to it. You're like drawn into the peculiarities of, of this guy's bored, uh, ridiculous, quasi-criminal lifestyle. Uh, there's one amazing shot in the movie where he and his friend 
put a series of bugles on the treadmill in their basement and eat the bugles as as they travel along the treadmill. And it's it's amazing because it's this hilarious, strange visual that also is like a, a really pinpoints just like how disconnected these people are from the notion of responsibility. Um, is that going to be in many theaters? Yeah, Oscilloscope is releasing it in New York and L.A. this week, and I think a VOD release is coming up. But uh, what people should think about when they see it is that it's it's a terrific comedy for anybody who's ever had anxiety about how to make a living because ev- eventually this guy's scheme catches up to him, and, and what happens next uh, goes into this allegorical territory that kind of reminded me of some of those... Uh, or like early 80s Scorsese films like uh, King, King of Comedy or After Hours where this guy is sort of wandering this empty town and you may or may not be kind of in his mind at, at one point or another. And the way in which it unfolds, it's very dark but also kind of silly. I, I thought it was just like a great fusion of tones and uh, it shows a lot of potential for this guy. Joshua Burge, who's the main actor, he's kind of got like a Buster Keaton thing going on. He's actually got a, a bit part in The Revenant, the next Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu film, uh, which is shooting now. So uh, he'll, he'll, he's kind of on the up and up. Whether or not Joel Petrakis reaches beyond, you know, making kind of stranger, smaller movies like this, I don't know. But I'm certainly happy that a movie like Buzzard exists. Now, what's the, uh, the film opening this week that you're excited about? I'm not excited about it. Um, I'm fascinated by uh, the the Fox Searchlight uh, sequel, uh, the the second best um, exotic marigold hotel, which is exactly what it says. It's the second best. You know, it's not as good as the first one. I I found the first one to be um, a, a, a guilty pleasure because um, it's it was well written and well acted by these charming. I mean, you cannot deny the charm of Judy Dench, Bill Nye, and Maggie Smith. And you can maybe get uh, overexposed to Dev Patel and his antics or um, some of the subplots which go on and are less interesting than our main uh, protagonists. But I... um, it's so beautifully made, you know, you're just sort of in that, you know, milieu again. And it's one of those cases where you recognize that there is a certain skill involved in replicating the elements that worked in the first one, giving them to you again with a little bit of a fillip and a little bit of a, of a garnish and and not um, alienating you completely. So th- this is damning with faint praise. In other words, this too was a guilty pleasure. But yeah. of all the things that are open, I, I have to tell you, we ran a review of it from England that was negative, and you know, I I read it and I understood what the guy was saying. I still wanted to see it. So it's probably not your demo, Eric. It may be my demo, but I will predict that this will do very well. Yeah, maybe it'll do really well, and who knows whether or not it's part of my demo, because I didn't even see the first one. (laughs) I'm sure you didn't. (laughs) I could be missing out on something that could change my life. No, don't worry about it. Uh, Look, I, as much as, uh, you know, it it might seem easy to read what my sensibilities are, I mean, I, my enthusiasm for cinema came out of a love for classic screwball comedies, and I don't know if this is exactly that, but I would say that it's, those are perhaps less, uh, you know, edgy in some ways and a lot of the movies that I, I like today, but I, but I, I can appreciate a polished kind of entertainment 
when it's when it's done well and when it's exciting, when the rhythms are strong, when it gives you some interesting characters, when it says something funny or or, uh, or poignant about uh, human behavior. Um, but when you're called the second best marigold hotel, you're kind of asking for a lot of puns there. Exotic, that, uh, exotic. Well, so there you go. <laughs> In any case, I'll leave that one to you. And yep. uh, I hope people see Buzzard this week. Uh, next okay. week, you're going to be uh, off the grid. I'm going so. to uh, Colombia in South America. Uh, occasionally, uh, a country will decide that they need uh, some press and so there's a bunch of uh, website masters and trade writers and people going down to uh, get a, a junket uh, from Medellin to Bogota, the capital, to a film festival in Cartagena. Hena, I think is how you do it. And I am studying my Spanish, which is terrible. Um, well, and- let me correct a few things right now because I don't know if you know this about me, but my father is actually from Bogota. No way. Um, so I, I spent a lot of my early years going there. Um, it was a small Jewish community I think of you as there. a Seattle guy. Yeah. And, and well, you know, I, I am a Seattle guy with a very strange background. Uh, with my, my Jewish father, who people would always think he was Israeli. And then he would tell them they, they, that he was Colombian and they, they would crack up. But um, So you're good at Spanish. You know, it's there. I will tell you that it is Cartagena, not Cartagena. There's no Enya. Okay. Uh, I better learn this or I'm going to be in trouble. I'll be the ugly American. Well, but but, but Cartagena is a beautiful city with actually a a great film festival that's been around for over 50 years. I've been trying to get out there for a really long time. So I'm jealous you're you're going going there. You should have gone. Uh, I'll be there eventually. I've been, the thing is that when you go to places like that. You set me up for CineQuest. I'll set you up for Cartagena. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) This is how it works, guys. All right. Enjoy it. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.